Tonight, we begin the book of Leviticus. Now, you may have read bits and pieces of Leviticus, but if you actually slowed down and studied this book, you will find out just how important and interesting. Yes, that's right. I said interesting. Leviticus is. Now, it was written by Moses in the year 1445 BC, which was just after the Exodus and while they were in the wilderness. Now, this book establishes the priesthood and it gives laws to God's people. The whole reason the priesthood exists is because of sin. See, think of it like this. If God is holy and because of sin we are unholy, how are we ever going to be reconciled to a holy God? Well, so the priest serves as an intercessor between God and the people and God loves us so much that he created a path for reconciliation. Now, this path is through animal sacrifices. So even though today it might kind of seem strange or gross, it was a path for forgiveness. See, Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And so rather than us having to die for our sins, animals die in our place. See, this helps us understand Jesus in the New Testament, doesn't it? So as we get into this book, you're going to learn a lot about holiness, atonement, and redemption. I'm excited, but hey, that's enough today for our historical minute. God, you are almighty, you are awesome, and we come to you tonight just excited to dig into your word some more. Father, life is hard and it's complicated, and, and yet your word, your truth continually serves as a, a light to our path, one that helps us uncomplicate our life, one that helps us find comfort and strength in you, one that reminds us that we're forgiven, one rem that reminds us that you're there continually for us. And so whether we're in the Gospels or whether we're in Leviticus, Lord, continue to remind us that you've got us, that you love us, and that we're yours. And we pray this tonight in Jesus' name and all God's people said, so I love the way Mike talked about this, the reality of sin. You know, we live in a culture today that's, I think, really interesting. If you, if you talk to people that are out there, if you listen to, to some of the, the people even preaching in pulpits today, there seems like there's almost a, a diminishing of that importance. One of my buddies once said to me, do you think God still cares about all the sin stuff? Right? And it's actually a pretty legit question for our culture because they don't hear much about it. They just hear about love continually. And so one of the interesting things about Leviticus is, man, it gets you into the weeds on God's law in a very important way. I want you to think so far, you have to kind of get off the Gospels and get back to Genesis and Exodus. Some of you guys journeyed with us as we went through that. And so Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve are in the garden and they were having a great time, hanging out. Everything was good. Everything was good until what happened? Sin entered in. And all of a sudden, God said, no, that's not cool. He actually was a little more angry than that, and he, he kicked them out of the garden, forbidding them ever to come back again. And then a few years passed, actually a lot of years passed, and in, in Genesis tells us that in the time of Noah, that every inclination of man's heart was evil all the time. But God looked upon man, and his heart was grieved that he even made them because of the sin that was involved on in the face of the earth. He looked for someone righteous, anyone righteous that he could save. And finally, he found Noah and his family. And because he had promised to Adam and to Eve that he would send someone to say, finally save us all from our sin once and for all, he says, not time yet, but I'm going to save Noah and his family. So he destroyed the whole of the entire earth, not because they, you know, didn't go to worship or, or not because they didn't have a concept of, you know, God is love or whatever, but they went to the parish in that flood because they had rebelled against God in every possible way because they sinned. 
got saved known as family, and a few years transpire again, a lot of years. And then God says, because of my promise and because of the rainbow, remember the reason that, the reason that we don't flood the earth again, you know, because I promised that, that rainbow is actually a, a sign of the covenant, a sign of the promise that he had made. He says, I'm going to work over it and I'm going to start over with Abraham. He's one that's hearts inclined to me and I think I can start with him and, and start creating a people of myself, a people that will finally worship me, a people that will finally honor me, a people that will finally know that I'm God. And so we start with Abraham and things go up and down or whatever, but finally, finally they, they love the Lord, they're trusting the Lord and then they get sequestered in, in Egypt for a long period of time, 400 plus years. During that time, they forget about the Lord. They start doing their own things. They're under incredible oppression. They have a concept of who God is still, a concept of his promises, but they stopped trusting in him a long time ago, and yet they don't know who else to turn to, so they cry out to him, save us, help us. Finally, that catches the Lord's ear, and it's time. Everything he's promised in 400 plus years, I'll bring you back, and so true to his word, he sends Moses, and he frees the people of, of Israel from Egypt. And did he free them because they were awesome people? Because they were following him perfectly? Because they were crying out to him day and night? They were actually out of their pain, but not always out of faith. We see that just as they journeyed from Egypt, right, to trying to get to the promised land. Over and over and over they blow it. Over and over and over they sin. And each time they sin because God was a very attentive parent at that point, right? He let them face very severe consequences to that rebellion, often wiping them out through plague, opening up the earth in one case, you know, to swallow a whole bunch of folk. The reality is he punished sin immediately because sin is rebellion against God, pure and simple. It's hatred toward God. It's not trusting God. And I like that word trust. We use trust in our world today. Not so much faith as, or we don't understand faith, I think, but trust we do. And so here's, I'll just simply say, if we trust that God is awesome, that he loves us, that he's good, that he's righteous, that he's true, that his word is for us, not to harm us, that all these things are for us, right? That we're forgiven because of Jesus. And we trust that. Then why in the world would we get to a place where we stop trusting this truth to pursue our own way? I mean, objectively, it doesn't make any sense. We know this is the safest path. We know this is the way that's going to lead to the least complication in our life. We know this is the way to blessing most of the time, right? So why in the world would we veer from this path ever? It's because of sin. And when we stop trusting God to pursue our own way, we call it rebellion, we call it hatred, we call it unbelief all the different descriptors in Scripture, but that's what sin is. And it's due to that distrust in God, that unbelief, that rebellion, that God hates it so. And I know we minimize the whole thing in, in our culture today as if it's nothing. And because of Jesus, for us who believe, it's not nothing, but it is forgiven, right? And so when he called, or, uh, called Israel out of this, it wasn't because they were awesome. It was because he had promised. And he was giving them Grace. Grace. I promised and I'm going to save you despite yourselves. And he called them in and he brings them out, right? And they finally, through a lot of complication and disobedience, they finally get to, to Mount Sinai, right? And, and they're listening to the law and this is part of the law. Remember, God had come down, shown himself and, and through, through his voice and thunder, the, everything was shaken, the people were afraid. They come to grips just a few weeks earlier, right, with, the, with the, the golden calf that they had made, face the punishment for that. They had a very huge awareness that they weren't saved just to do whatever. They had a very clear understanding that God, the God who loved them, had called them to be his people and that he had rules. <laughs> 
and that he was serious about those rules. And because of the way that he had shown himself to them, they were afraid. They wanted Moses to speak as a mediator to them because they were of their sin, because they were suddenly cognizant of how broken they were. And in that context, God gives them Leviticus, right? I want you to have a way to be at peace with me. Not terrified at every moment because of your sin, but to have peace with me. You think of the peace that Jesus brought us on the cross, right? Alienated from God, deserved to go to hell, and in that moment, forgiven for all time. Completely forgiven. Our sins wiped away. It's not because of us that we were saved by Jesus. It's not because of our works. It's because of grace. I had a buddy one time, and I've shared this, I think, before, you know, and, and he was talking to somebody, and they said, well, are you saved? And he goes, I think so. And he goes, what do you mean you think so? Well, I think I've done enough stuff. And I remember him sharing that at a Bible study. I go, oh, buddy, you haven't done anywhere close to enough. And he goes, his face kind of fell, like, what are you talking about? I haven't done enough. Oh, my goodness, what am I going to do, you know? And, and I said, none of us have. All your efforts, I mean, nothing is close to being righteous. He doesn't grade you on a scale. And even if he did, we'd fail that test as well. We are broken. We continue to sin even though we know better. We continue to distrust God. We continue to rebel against him. We continue to seek our own way. We continue to face complication and bring all sorts of, of, of consequence on our life. We're not saved because of what we do. We're saved because of what Jesus did. And when he did it, he says it is complete. It is finished. And so what gains us that forgiveness Trust in Jesus. Pure and simple. That is it. Trust in Jesus saves us. We do not, we're not obedient to God to earn his merit, to earn his good, thinking that we're good people, to somehow earn something like that. We follow him because we trust. He saved us. He loves us. He wants what's good for us. It just makes sense to be obedient to him. It's almost self-serving in a way, and it's purely out of love in other ways. When we follow him despite our understanding and just follow him, out of trust. So getting back to Leviticus, he gives us this. And he says, okay, so it's not because of you guys that, that you're saved. There's this sin issue that keeps complicating things. He saw that in the desert. We want to try to figure out a remedy for some of that sin stuff. And then he wants to share with us just how serious he looks at this. When you sin, you deserve to die. Oh, we don't look at that like that quite in our society today, do we? But God does. He demands a death payment for the rebellion that you've done. And so when he gives us the sacrificial system, he's saying, we're going to spill some blood. And not anybody's blood, not a guilty person, but an innocent, an innocent blood. And you can't find that amongst man, so they went to the animal world because they're innocent of sin, right? And so you take an animal without blemish, and you sacrifice that innocent thing to God because of your rebellion, because of your sin. And he doesn't just let you do it from afar, pay somebody to do it. You actually got to go and put your hand on the animal. Commit him to sacrifice. Then you got to kill the animal, knowing that the animal is paying the price that you deserve to face. And then you got to rip apart, it gets kind of gross, rip apart the animal, right? And then finally burn it. Experiencing in the full grossness of it all, the consequence for your sin, but celebrating the fact that it wasn't you, but that God allowed a sacrifice. He allowed a substitution in your place. And so when Israel went and they sacrificed, and we'll get into that in a little bit here, they were filled with joy. 
this was a way for them to be right with God. You know, Jesus dying and rising, it made us right with him. He had a broken relationship. It was broken in every way. His death and resurrection made us righteous before his eyes. He fixed that broken relationship. And when they would sacrifice this burnt offering, they were making right that relationship again. Because you've allowed the sacrifice in my stead, you now see no sin in me, at least for the moment, right? And so we begin. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offerings of livestock from the herd and from the flock. So the Lord called Moses, just kind of to emphasize this is important stuff. I'm telling Moses, this is my instruction. I don't want you to get lost in the, in the, in, in, in the inspiration of God in this whole text here. This is how I want you guys to behave. Super important. Priests, you need to get this right or you're going to be held under, under judgment. So this was super important what he wanted them to do. And he says, I want you to go find an innocent animal. Any of your sacrifices, they need to be innocent, without blemish, without stain, in any possible way. Most of the the surrounding countries had sacrificial uh, systems, but it wasn't to be forgiven. It was to try to appease the gods. Some believe that it was giving them a meal. So, you know, you sacrifice a cow, right? Because there's steak in that, right? Or, or you sacrifice a p- pig so there's, you know, there's bacon. Or whatever they sacrificed, right? There was a sacrificial system where they were either supplying the, the dietary needs of these gods because they weren't on earth anymore, you know, and they need, they're hungry. So, or you were trying to appease them. They actually offered all sorts of other kinds of things. Sexual, sexual, um, Sex was a big part of, of a lot of these cults as well and, and, the, and the worship of idols. They thought by doing that, the gods would be aroused, right, and send rain as a result on earth. So they did all sorts of crazy things, but none of it, it was kind of a manipulation of the god, trying to appease the god, but it was never for this idea of forgiveness. If we can get, I just take a step back and get over ourselves a little bit, it's, we're not righteous before God because we're in church on Sunday night. We haven't earned up enough credits because we serve at a soup kitchen or we've been to Honduras for, you know, some mission trip or, or that I get up here and I preach on a regular basis. We're all broken before him and we need Jesus. They realized that there was nothing they could do to earn that rightness with God. And so this burnt offering, seriously, was all about resetting that relationship, finding atonement with God. In other words, being made right with him. And his offering is a burnt offering from the herd and shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it into the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. And then he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him, make him right before God. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord and Aaron's son's priest shall bring the blood and throw it at the blood against the sides of the altar that, it is, that, that is the entrance of the tent of meeting." And somebody, when I was teaching youth and, and talking about some of this stuff, they'd say, oh, that's gross. I mean, why would they, I mean, they're throwing it on stuff. They're, they're just getting it all over their hands. I mean, it's, it's just gross. And I said, it gives you a sense of the grossness of sin to God. The grossness of our rebellion. The mess that it creates in our life. The complication. The yuckness. The feeling. God wants I wanted these guys to get immersed in all of that. I want you to see what it looks like to be punished for your sin and know the grace of not having to be the one. 
there's a powerful thing in that. And, and when the Israelites, again, when they came, they were filled with joy that God would give them a substitute. They had just faced God's anger, right, his discipline in very severe ways where people died. Now God was saying, if you blow it, if you somehow veered from me accidentally, right, there's a way back to a rightness with God. And it wasn't complete. They didn't have Jesus yet, but they looked forward to Jesus. That's part of this as well. They still had the promise. They were still looking forward to the Messiah to come. This was but a type of what he would do permanently one day. But this was worship for them. This was by far the most predominant uh, offering that they, or sacrifice that they did on a regular basis. They did it in the morning. They did it in the evening. Why? to cover the sin, to make that relationship right. They knew that it wasn't on them. They knew it was because of the blood of the lamb, in this case, or the bull or whatever, that they would be made right with him. And so they continued to do that. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's son's priest shall bring it, the blood, and throw the blood against the sides of the altar uh, to this entrance to the tent of meeting. I'm going to move down a little bit in verse 9. And at the end it says, As a burnt offering or food offering with a pleasing aroma to God, Sometimes we read that and we think, again, we're, we're appeasing God. Somehow God likes the smell. No, no, no. He likes the act of obedience. He likes the act of worship. That you came and you say, I want to be made right with you. We don't have to bring bowls and, 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 and animals when we come to worship. Thanks be to God for that, for Jesus, another reason. But the reason we come here is to connect with our almighty God. To know that we're good with him to know that we've been forgiven, to know that we're his, to know that there's hope, to know that his promises are true. We come to gather together to connect with this almighty God. And if you get that, then you get the whole idea of what the burnt offering was about. It was a way to, to connect with him. I got a question. Did God kick Adam and Eve out of the garden so that they couldn't eat of the tree of life? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's one of the reasons. And also, the, he was giving them severe punishment. He actually put that angel, right, with the swords or whatever, at the entrance so that they could never get in to eat of the tree of life and thus make permanent what they did. So now for all of us, there's an end, right? 120 days is what it says in Scripture in Genesis. And then we, that is, you know, if we ever worry about the end times, within 120 years, every one of us is going to be in our maker, right? We just know it. And when that time comes, and he, you know, he will determine that time. I was, I'm going to tangent for a sec here. We were just reading Job and staff, and Job just went through some horrible, horrible stuff. And at points he cries out, it would have been better if I hadn't been born. I don't understand why you're not taking me home. This is horrible. Take me home now. Take me home. I mean, he's just like crying out, this, I'm so miserable. Why am I still here? But I want you to notice in Job, he never contemplates taking his own life. He knows that as long as he has breath, God has purpose for him. And so he continues to, he says, though you slay me, yet I will hope in you. So anyway, this burnt offering is all about putting him first, all about connecting to him, all about being made right as, a, as an Israelite. Now I'm going to skip ahead to chapter 2, and you may wonder why I skip, usually I just go verse to verse to verse, but there's a lot of repetition in here, and it is slow reading. So we're going to move ahead just a little bit to chapter 2, and we're going to talk about the grain offering. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering of the Lord, his offering shall be uh, that of fine flour. He shall pour out the, the oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons and priests. And it goes on a little bit and says, But the rest of the grain offerings shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is the most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. So the grain offering was always offered in conjunction with the burnt offering. Burnt offering was coming to worship, right? It was making yourself, or get, through that sacrifice, being made right with God. God was doing it, the action in there. 
But the grain offering was always part of it. And what it was, it was bringing your first fruit. It was kind of the tithe, right? And it was bringing your first fruit to the Lord and said, we want to thank you for everything that you are, for everything that you've done for us. We give to you our first fruits. And it was the tithe. And what they would do is they would sacrifice a memorial portion of that tithe, right, to honor before the Lord. The incense go up before the Lord. The, the, the priest would do the same thing. And then the priest would live on the rest of the tithe, They were completely dependent upon the people of Israel to supply their needs. And it was the way that God set it up. He said, every Israelite, you're supposed to give the tithe to the Levites. And the Levites are supposed to give the tithe to the priests. And that's just the way it's If everybody does their thing, everybody's taken care of. You always have a representative before me. Paul builds on this in the New Testament and says a worker is worth its hire. Talks about how you should supply in the New Testament even the wages of the pastors or the preachers of the word so that you have somebody to serve before you. It's just God's way of setting it up so that there was sustainability. But it was a, first and foremost a way of saying thank you, God. Man, you are a God of promise. You allowed my crops to come up this year in powerful ways. You allowed me to earn a living. You gave me health to keep on going until my kids get big enough where they can help out on the farm. You gave me kids to keep that going as I get to my old age. You've provided it in every possible way. Now, if you weren't a farmer, sometimes you would convert that into different things to supply uh, the priest with, or you would just give money and they would live off some of that as, as time went on. But it was a thank offering, but it was also a tithe. Uh, David said one time, I will not, this was after he blew it uh, with the census and he was being punished and, and God was, was wiping out everybody with a plague as a result of that. God gets real serious about sin, right? And so, so he came to, he fell to his knees and God halted the, the plague because of David's confession and, and David went out to sacrifice and, and he went to this one land where he saw the angel of death kind of go over everybody and he, and he said, I want to buy this plot of land and the guy offered to give it to him for free but he said, no, 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 no. I will not sacrifice anything to the Lord that costs me nothing. Part of worship is being all in. Part of worship is being, God, I'm giving you everything. You are my all. Part of worship is obedience, right? It's receiving the amazingness of God through his promise, through his forgiveness in Christ now, but it's also coming to say, I want to follow you. I want to trust you. I'm all in. The thought that anybody could come to worship to give sacrifices in this way and cost themselves nothing was such a foreign concept at this time. They were so grateful for what God had given them that they gave. And, and they were somewhat obedient for a while and then centered and in. They kind of went up and back. But, but anyway, that was the whole idea of the grain offering. Um, in verse 13, it says, You shall... Uh, season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt and the, of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. Uh, with all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Seems like such a random thing before then. He says, I don't want any leaven or honey in it. Okay, so just to back up, leaven and honey uh, actually cause a decomposition of the food. And this was stuff that the priests were going to live on for a while, so it needed to last a little bit. Salt is a preserver, right? So it kept the food going a little bit longer. So it's just a way to protect some of the stuff. God puts that into this as well. Understand this, this is inspired by God. This is shared by God. So God's thinking about all these need stuff in the middle of the sacrifices as well. Then we move on to chapter 3, and I think I get chapter 3 in today, and that's the fellowship offering or, or the peace offering. In the peace offering, um, well, I'll just read through some of this. If the offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. 
And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall follow the blood against the si- or throw the blood against the sides of the altar. When we consider the burnt offering, everything that you brought forward was put up in fire. There was nothing left over for anybody. It was just all consumed in totality. Representing the, the, the complete promises of God, representing that we're all in in worship, representing all that we're being completely forgiven at that moment, all those things that we are completely in, in um, concert, or not concert, but we're in good relationship with God. Um, the grain offering didn't include anything, included grain, so that wasn't a deal. But the fellowship offering also included blood. Um, the fellowship offering, as well as the, was one of those things that that they did, you think of Passover, when Jesus broke the bread and stuff like that. It was an offering that they brought forward where they killed the animal. Again, getting the blood in there, getting that atonement, getting the forgiveness. But instead of throwing away the, or burning up the whole animal, in the case of the burnt offering, they would keep a portion of it for the people that brought the offering forward to celebrate. And so the priest got a little portion of it, but the vast majority of the portion that was not consumed in the sacrifice was given back to the people to go have a party with, right? To go fellowship before God. And it was this, it was this idea that since you have made us right, we can fellowship with you. We can rejoice in who you are. We can rejoice in the relationship that we have with you. We can rejoice in your promises of comfort and of support and of promise and of strength and of all the different things that he gives. And so you think about Passover. Passover would have been one of those times where they just, not every day, but, but they, they, during that week that they would have done a lot of these offerings where you give a portion of the Lord to say thanks, thank you for everything, and we're gonna celebrate who you are and what you are. And they would eat together, and it was a way to build community, right, with your family. It was a way to, to honor the Lord and what you were doing. But it was a way to just say, God, we love everything that you do. We, we, we love that we've been made right. We love this. And it wasn't so much about we're being made right, and that's our worship thing. It was like after hours, right, in there where we're just hanging out and we're having fun. And it was a way to celebrate all that the Lord is. And then he goes on and he gives us, uh, well, and then he says this part in verse 17. He says, it shall be a statute forever throughout all your generations in all of your dwelling places that you should eat not fat or blood. Kind of a curious thing at the end of that, and I'm just picking some of the things as we go through this that you might find curious. And it says, no one should eat fat or blood as long as the sacrificial system would endure. Actually, blood went beyond that because in the New Testament, one of the prohibitions is don't eat blood. I mean, that was one of the things of the, new, of the early church. But you weren't supposed to eat fat because that was a holy portion to the Lord. In all of the sacrifices, they would take the fat out and burn it before the Lord as his portion. You just think that's the part that God liked to eat. No, I'm just kidding. But it was a holy portion to the Lord and it was always given to him, okay? So they would never eat what was God's. And the blood, because it was the vehicle for atonement. You get, it's the blood of the innocents that can bring forgiveness to the guilty. It is that blood that atones, right? That innocent blood. And one of the reasons I love starting Leviticus right after doing the Gospels and Jesus dying on the cross is because in a very clear way it says why Jesus had to be perfect before man. He had to be innocent of all sin. He had to be perfect to be the perfect sacrifice for the sins of many. He had to do all of those things. And the funny thing about God is that he faced all the same temptations that we did. It's just that in those moments, he always made the right choice. Can you comprehend that? 
Like all the times that you've been tempted, you've made the right choice sometimes. Yeah, you guys, right? But, but he made the right choice every time. Every time he was under distress, every time he was being tempted, every time he, was, he started to, you know, even being tempted to lose hope, any time life got hard, he always made the right decision. The decision to be obedient to God, the decision to trust God above everything. He was that perfect, innocent sacrifice that won for us the forgiveness of our sins forever. Paul talks about through one man, sin entered the world, Adam and Eve, right? Sin entered the world and, and everybody has to deal with it. But through one man, Jesus, that sin has been atoned for forever. It, it's, it's an awesome kind of understanding. But in our culture today, I think so often when we minimize sin, we forget why it is that we come to church. We forget that it's not to learn how to live a godly life, which is important, right? It's not just to learn to, about how amazing God's love for us and comfort is and that he answers prayer and, that, and all those different things, which he does, and that's amazing. But the core of why we come is to be made right with God, which is why we start every service with confession and absolution, to hear the words, you're forgiven of all your sins. We are a hospital for sinners, no perfect people need apply. But for all who come and desire forgiveness, Jesus says it's yours because of my blood. Now, I want to share one thing aside from Leviticus today because I, I, I shared it in early services, but some of you guys weren't there. I have a potential miracle that I want to share with you today. Um, if you've been part of our church for very long, you know that we've uh, tried a lot of different things facility-wise. And we keep coming up against a huge barrier to build anything bigger than 2,000 square feet, okay? And that barrier is 31st Street and the waterline underneath it. So this week, oh, and also, we've been told by the city on multiple occasions that there is no reason ever why they would do 31st Street. There is no benefit to the city whatsoever, yada, yada, yada. Figure out how to work it into your campaigns. So this week, we found out that there's a 90% chance that they're going to do 31st Street. It's in their plans. They're bidding it out next month. They're going to go through the process. It's actually going to be funded in 2020, 2021. All that, so it's, 90, it's the city, so 90%. We're going to pray it to 9,900%. But the reality is that's to the tune of $1.5 million. They're doing the road. They're doing the curbing. They're doing the sidewalking. They're doing the street lights, everything but the water line. But if we do it in con conjunction with them, the water line will never be cheaper. If we do all that and we do some parking that will address some grading, we will never be li limited by that street again. Praise be to God. So I sure that God sometimes just does his thing. That there is no, I'm still blown away by the fact that he would even do that. But nobody benefits more than us from that street being done. It saves us countless dollars. It means that every capital campaign that we do forward is all on our site now. It's an incredible miracle, and I want you to see it as such. And it just means, too, in, in the spring, probably we'll have a capital campaign to do that water line and some of that parking. So keep praying this, right? Keep making sure the city doesn't do weird stuff, because sometimes they do. But, but this is looking really sure. So just, anyway, I share that with you, because it's a, oh, the second miracle, I'm almost off Diet Coke. Yay! Okay, so <laughs> let me pray. God, we love you so much and just thank you for, for being with us today as we've talked through some of Leviticus. It's, it's sometimes um, 
parts of it are tough reads, but it's all exciting. And, and when we truly do begin to understand some of these sacrifices, some of these offerings that you do, Lord, it kind of puts it into a context that there's a lot of ways that they could go and they could be with you, worship you, find consolation for different things. Next week, we'll talk about the sin offering and the, and the guilt offering and, and how you specifically gave them ways to find that peace with you, to experience that forgiveness, that consolation. And while it was temporary, Lord, and you made that permanent in Christ, it was a powerful way to not have to be afraid all the time, to be at one with you, to experience all that you are in your amazingness. You looked upon these people that needed to know you better, and you provided a way for them to know you powerfully, and not in fear, but in love. Father, we thank you for that tonight. Give us that perspective as we worship here in this day. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Guys, go with this blessing tonight. I hope you had fun. Um, may our Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious always unto you. And may he look upon you now with his favor and grant you his peace. And all God's people said, amen. Please rise.